The first way to be a watchdog of doctrine is to eliminate word fights because they destroy. The phrase there, do not wrangle about words, is one word, logomahia, I think. That's what Google said. Um, how to pronounce it. Pronounce logomahia. There you go. Omri? Um. <laughs> MacArthur defines that word as to wage a war of words. R. Kent Hughes's definition calls them word fights. And most commentators agree that the emphasis in this word is on the war, the fight, or the battle. Paul is telling Timothy that there are arguments taking place in your church and that he must put, them to, put a stop to them. But he doesn't really talk much about what the words are. He's surprisingly quiet here in this point. And I think that's because the fights are so prominent that Timothy doesn't need to have that restated. Um, but unfortunately for us, we just don't know those details. But we do know that the emphasis that Paul is pleading with Timothy is to stop fighting. And Paul expands his em emphasis here by telling them why. Because it's useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. The imagery here is of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember fire raining down from heaven and wiping out an entire city? That's the ruin of the hearers that word fights creates. So by God's grace, let's not join in arguments, but destroy because word fights destroy. And we as a church are to eliminate those word fights. Let me clarify, these aren't just any fight. Paul, Paul has built a ton of ink clarifying scriptural truth. So that can't be what he's talking about here. Paul would never charge us in the presence of a holy and blameless God to not take his word seriously. Paul is charging the exact opposite. Paul is saying these people are arguing about words and the word is sitting right there. Paul wants them to open it, read it, and be affected by it. And it's clear that if we spend time in the word, we will be changed by it. Let's reread verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The second way to be a watchdog of a doctrine is to gain God's approval with scripture study. Reading this passage, it's easy, and it's even the heading in, your, in my NASB Bible that it's the workman in scripture passage. However, that's not the emphasis here. Paul says, be approved by God. He contrasts the ruining of those around him with an approval from God. I love God. I want to serve and honor him. I want to be the man of God described here. But what I really want is my father's approval. I mean, wrap your head around that. We're talking about the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, the giver of all things, looking at your life and saying, yes, that's exactly what I want from that guy. And then, as the gracious father that he is, he tells us how to gain that approval. Work hard in the scriptures. Prove yourself as someone that knows and understands so well who he is that you can look at his words, know what he means, and shut down word fights with it. And there's an emphasis here on the details. Let's not only get a broad stroke of scripture. When we're rightly dividing the word of truth, we are taking a sharp knife to it 
slicing off the tiniest sliver of truth and being affected by that sliver. There is fruit in the details of Scripture, and Paul is telling Timothy that God approves of the details. There's one more point that I want to quickly review in this section. The emphasis of this passage isn't the workman, but the workman is there. We need to work hard at this. We need to work so hard that we're not ashamed of the effort that we're putting forth. We need to carve out time in our weeks for extended, deep, fruitful time to work in Scripture. God promises clarity, but he doesn't promise simplicity. We need to be in the word with the idea that the Father is watching, the Father is critiquing, and the Father will give us his approval when we rightly divide it. And that leads to the third point. Stop ungodly discussions, for they foster ungodliness. Verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Worldly and empty chatter leads to further ungodliness. There's something intrinsically obvious about that, right? Worldly and empty discussions are discussions that have no basis in God. So in essence, they're the opposite of scriptural deep discussions. So of course, if your discussions are godless, they will lead to godlessness. Paul brings up what seems to be the ringleader of the dissension-creating faction builders, Hymenius. Paul warned Timothy about this guy. Actually, Hymenius was handed over to Satan in 1 Timothy, meaning that he'd already been disciplined out of the church, and yet his influence was still in the church. Most likely, he was still in communication with the church, and Paul is saying, it is of the utmost importance to get these guys out of here. Save your flock from them. They're spreading false doctrine, and this has to stop. And I find it interesting in this section that he states explicitly what the doctrine is. He leaves the first point ambiguous at the beginning, but here he wants to emphasize the fight and gives us an example to emphasize the details. Look at verse 18 again. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Paul is disgusted here. He has an emotional response to someone who would call himself a Christian, yet recognize, yet not recognize the eternal glory and joy that we will receive in heaven. Paul is sick of this mishandling of theology and misunderstanding of philosophy. Paul is done with these guys and wants to use strong, strong imagery to get rid of them and purge their words from the church. And that's why he uses the illustration of gangrene. I did a little bit of research, not a lot. I mean, you got to be careful what you Google, right? Um, you Google gangrene, you see some nasty stuff. Um, it is nasty. Um, it's the death of a tissue in the part of a body. It happens when a body loses its blood supply or part of its blood supply. If treatment is delayed and it spreads quickly, the patient will likely die, even in today's medical world. I don't want God to use gangrene as an analogy for anything that I do or am a part of. Gangrene is nasty stuff. And if my words or debates have that effect on people, I don't want it. So we have to be watchdogs of doctrine. We have to eliminate word fights. We have to gain God's approval with scripture study and put a stop to ungodly discussions. We have to. The Bible teaches us something more about this story, um, but it's not in Timothy. So turn to Revelation 2. 
to remember Timothy was um, pastoring the church at Ephesus. And we get to Revelation 2. And we see kind of the end of the story for the church at Ephesus. And so let's start at Revelation 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. This is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. This is actually great news, right? They did it. Paul warned them that Hymenaeus and Philetus uh, about what they were doing to the church, and now they're gone. This is a good report. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. More great news. If we remember in the remind them section, it was, in, it was centered around endurance and they did it. Ephesus is getting a glowing review. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Knowledge is great. Doctrine is beautiful. Perseverance is vital. But if we forget why we're doing this and whom we love, we're wasting our time. See, God the Father saw man and wanted us to know about him intimately. But there was a divide, and that divide was our sin. And God sent himself as man to live the perfect life and be our sin for us. We know this, right? We know the gospel. And we created a divide, and God removed it, and now we can know him. Now we can love him. Actually, how can we not love him, knowing these things? But that's just what the church at Ephesus did. They got so focused on the words that they forgot their first love. The first love, or love for Jesus, is a sweet, sweet thing that we cannot miss out on when we open scriptures. We cannot leave our first love. Joshua 23.11 says, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Be very careful to love him. We have to love him. And that's what we talk about here in Build. We talk about the importance of opening your word and meeting with God. You're, when you open the word, it's important to get the details right. It's important to focus on the details. It's important to get the knowledge. And it's really important to fall in love with your Savior when you open God's word. And so that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. Let me pray. We'll break up into discussion groups and be back here at 8. Lord God, we love you. Lord, your word makes yourself so real. Um, and it is such a good gift to be able to open your word and meet with you and read about the creator of the universe. Lord, help give us the perseverance to be diligent in your word. Lord, but help it affect us. Help us to draw us near to you. Help us all to grow in our love for you this year, Lord. In your name, amen. So if, if I taught every passage that's in your notes, we would be here till probably 10. Uh, <laughs> Scott's cheering for that, so be careful. <laughs> Um, if I taught every passage that I went through last year, we'd be here till 9.45. Um, and so I cut out a lot. So you're going to see in your notes, like, we're just going to skip a lot of verses. Um, and 
And I would encourage you to go back through and just read those over the course of this week um, because they will help inform this. Um, this is a survey of Scripture to understand what God's heart is about the home. And so if you're to walk away with one thing today, it's to know that God has an intimate and intentional priority for the home. And in that priority, um, it, it seems that consistently his priority in the home is holiness, the gospel, and his glory. And so I just want to ask or be thinking about this as you as we go through this is do my priorities in my home line up with God's and and the home in here can be lots of context I mean many of us are um, husbands and fathers and that's probably the easy default way to think about it but we all live in a home and we all influence people in our home Um, and so Whatever the context of your home is, what are your priorities and how do they line up with God's? And so we're going to um, work our way through scripture. We're going to start on the left side of our Bibles and work our way to the right. We may go back and forth because there's some themes here that I'm kind of tracing through in this lesson. Um, but overall, the whole point of this lesson is just so that you guys can see clearly where God's priorities are in the home. Um, and so let's get started. God's concern for your household is connected to his concern for your heart. And I want to look at that in um, three or four passages. So let me pray, and then we'll open up to Exodus 20. Lord God, make yourself real to us this morning. Lord, help align our hearts with your heart for our homes. Lord, help us to see clearly your priorities. Help us to see clearly... um, your goal in our home, Lord, and change us. Help us to be uh, better husbands, better better fathers, better leaders of our household, because we align with what you want in those places, Lord. In your name, amen. Exodus 20. We're in the Ten Commandments. Um, God's providing regulations like he's never done before. And so let's look at a few of them. Um, verse 12 says, You shall set bounds for the people all around saying wait where am I I'm on um, for some I'm on Exodus 19 which is not what I'm at teaching (laughs) what's really funny and probably disappointing is I have home pointed on Exodus 19 12 trying to give myself a guide so that I could look this up quickly and so I was wrong last night. Actually, I think I was wrong a year ago. When I this last okay, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Oh, that's so much better. That's much more what I was trying to point out. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Um, God has intention around the parent-child relationship. And then in verse 14... You shall not commit adultery. God speaks specifically to the husband-wife relationship. And then in verse 17, he says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
God points out three separate ways, um, three separate commandments that are specifically around how we think about our home. Um, God has specific ideas, expectations for this basic foundational relationship area, and in his most, like in his initial formalization of regulations for Israel, he pointed out the household for basically a third of them. I think that's important. He had very strong intentions for the household in this. Let's jump to Deuteronomy 4. We'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. That's discipline one, right there. Give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life and make them known to your sons and your daughters, or your sons and your grandsons. Discipline two. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Harob when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. There is a connection here between how you shepherd your heart and what you teach your household. Make them known to your children. There's an intentional aroma that comes from your study of scripture that feeds into your household. And let's turn a page to the right, maybe two, depending on your Bible, um, and look at chapter 6. Starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts and your house and your gates. This is so important. Um, this is more than, hey, we, we want to have an intentional time of devotions during breakfast every day. Um, we want to have an intentional time of devotions with our kids, with our household. But this is so much more than that. This is in the car on the way to soccer practice. This is, you know, when, when you're disciplining them. This is when you're walking anywhere like you want to have the words on your mouth and the the thoughts in your heart to be bubbling out so much that everywhere you go with your kids they're hearing the gospel and they're hearing about who God is and how much you love him and this is why what we talk about here in build is so important if I'm not shepherding my heart that's not going to be bubbling over if I'm thinking about constantly about sports and I like sports I liked it better in years past than this year but I like sports <laughs> I see some nods um, but if, if all my kids know about me is that I know every tendency of every player in the Suns that's not helpful um, 
and anyway, we've got CP3 and I hate him, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, it's so easy for us to know those right off the top of our mouth, and so easy for our kids. Like, the second that trade happened this week, my son and I were complaining about it. Um, and yet, the second I study scripture, do we talk about that? Not as much. And that this, this passage here is such a good reminder. I, I encourage you to memorize this passage. Memorize Deuteronomy 6. It's such a good reminder on what we need to be about as fathers. And it's God's heart for the family. Love the Lord your God. And as soon as he finishes saying that, write this everywhere. Teach your sons. Deuteronomy 7. Let's look at the beginning of that one. Uh, starting verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergeshites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their Asherim and burn their graved images with fire. There's so much I want to say about this passage. Um, the, the phrase there, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Um, if you're not shepherding your kids in a, towards godliness, that can affect you. Um, and it's interesting what comes into the home when, when he, this intermarriage happens. Um, their altars, he, he warns them against their altars, their sacred pillars, um, their idols. And the first thing I thought about is, what are idols that this world has that I've allowed in my home? Um, what are things I need to be protecting my kids from? You know, I've got a 13, 15, and 19-year-old. There are lots of things that can come into my home that would cause them to sin. Um, this world is a dangerous place. We are living amongst dangerous people. And if I'm not super intentional about protecting them against what comes into their home, I'm giving them a room, room to sin. The burden was on the father and mother in Israel to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would not abandon Yahweh. Um, we know that the heart impacts the home. And here the emphasis is on how the home impacts the heart. 
another verse, this one we're going to skip, but Psalm 78, 1 through 8, shows us the inseparable connection between man's heart for Yahweh and his obligation with his own children. Um, I would encourage you to read that. But let's jump to Ephesians 6. I think there was another verse that I deleted out of my notes, too. Read that one. It was so hard to cut verses. I wanted to do this all. Um, Ephesians 6. Uh, Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The fifth commandment brought under the authority is now here brought under the authority of Jesus Christ for the church. Children need to shepherd their hearts well with the gospel so as to be prepared to obey and honor their parents. Um, I know in years past we've had some kids in here. We have some kids here. Like, that's important. You need to be shepherding your heart so you can honor your parents. It's hard to honor your parents sometimes. Um, Shepherd your heart for that. Um, But dads and moms, we need to shepherd our heart so that we're not frustrating our children, so that we're not provoking them to anger. Gospel-centered discipline is not provoking. Um, And I think sometimes it's hard to to differentiate because our kids can be angry at discipline, but that's not provoking them to anger. Um, Inconsistent parenting provokes. Um, There's there's a lot of things that provoke. Um, Consistent discipline that falls under the gospel um, is not going to provoke kids to anger, not the kind of anger that's discussed here. And so we need to be consistent. And like I said, my kids are a little bit older. It's a different thing when your kids are younger. It's a lot harder to be consistent. It's a lot, it takes a lot of work. It's really easy to get home from work after a long day and not be ready to be on with your parenting. And your wife has spent the whole day trying to be on with her parenting and needs a break. <laughs> and, and it's hard to to even have the handoff be very consistent and to want to be more gracious than she is or more disciplined than she is, and that's not helpful. Um, The kids need to not see a difference between how mom and dad parent. They need to see consistency. Um, And so there's shepherding between the two of you and communication between the two of you. There's, I mean, I could teach a lesson on parenting just out of this verse, Um, but I I think Scott's the only one that wants to be here till 10, so. It's it's important, um, and you know the overarching theme today is God puts a lot of emphasis on our parenting and on the way that we interact with our family in our home. Let's go to First Timothy chapter three. I've never been good at sword drills. I have to read. I have to sing the whole song in my head to get anywhere in the Bible. First <laughs> Timothy 3, verse 4. 
he must be one who manages his own household well. We're talking about um, qualifications for an elder. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? God's design in the church is to have men leading who have trained themselves to oversee their household relationships and who will not play leapfrog over their wives and children as they engage in gospel ministry in the church. Um, That follows the build discipline model. If we even look here, you know, if he does not manage his his own household discipline too, how will he take care of the church of God? Discipline three. Um, God holds household relationships in high regard, and he died for the church, and he asks men that lead the church to shepherd their household well. Um, If you aspire to be an elder, this is important. If you don't aspire to be an elder, this is important. Um, There's a difference between wanting and desiring to shepherd the body and wanting and desiring to be qualified to shepherd the body. Every man in this room should desire to be qualified to be shepherding the body. Um, and, and many of you should desire shepherding. Um, as God grows you, your love for the body will grow. Um, but we need to be qualified men, which means we need to be shepherding our households well. Okay, let's back up and look at an Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. In Joshua 24. This is the last chapter of the book of Joshua after the conquest of Canaan. The, the, Israel was clearing the land and, um, and frankly didn't do some of the things they were supposed to do. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. I think I have 14 through 28, um, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses and then paraphrase the rest for the sake of time. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That phrase is very, I think, very familiar. It's probably at every Christian bookstore in the nation. Um, What's interesting is the rest of this passage, because Joshua's basically telling everyone to serve God first. And Israel responds, well, of course we will. Of course we're going to do that. And, and Joshua's like, yeah, I, that's not what I'm seeing. Um, and they responded, oh, yeah, yeah, no, don't worry. We're going to serve God first. And um, Joshua actually made a visual covenant with them as a visual reminder that they needed to serve God first. Um, because he clearly knew what it meant to be focused on his household. And he saw that Israel wasn't. He saw, frankly, that Israel was giving lip service to this and saying, yeah, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to serve this for God first. We're going 
serve our households. We're going to lead our households in the way that you want us to lead them. And they didn't. They weren't. They loved the things of the Amorites. They loved the things of the world more than they loved serving God. Um, we need to be careful of that. We can sit in this room and go, man, I'm going to go home and serve my household well. I'm going to go home and bring the gospel to my kids. And then work gets in the way. And then television picks up where we left off. And we come here in two weeks, or the night before we come here, we open up our homework and go, man, I did not implement that well. It's easy. I've done that. I've taken build and come back, opened up my homework on Friday, and said, I didn't even remember what I heard last Saturday. Um, it's easy for us to give lip service to this. Like, when I see scripture, I see myself in Israel a whole lot more than I see myself in Joshua. Um, and, and we can't let that happen. We have to line up our heart for the household with God's heart for the household. Um, let's jump down to 1 Samuel. This is one scary. First Samuel 2. Starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. It's quite an indictment. Worth, the sons of Eli were worthless men. And I don't want to, I don't want to read the sons of Matt are worthless men. Um, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling, and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They surely will burn the fat first, then take as much as you desire. And then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. So Eli confronts them. Jumping down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, no, my sons for the report is not good, which I hear the, the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. And now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Eli, we don't know this, but it seems clear. Eli had not parented his sons well and they no longer listen to him. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do with my kids, and I mean, it's hard, I know, 
I've tried to, since they were very young, have as many intentional, open conversations as we possibly can to create a context for them to hear me and me to hear them as much as possible. And as they get older and they stay up later, sometimes that means staying up till they get home. Um, not always when they're at Omri's house and he doesn't leave till two in the morning, Omri. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there are times, like, I've carved out and intentionally been awake when, when Jonathan gets home for the last several years. And the best conversations I've had with him are when he gets home late at night. Um, and, and the point here is we need to not allow a context for our kids to not listen to us. We need to have a relationship with our kids. I, I still, pre-COVID, have lunch with my dad every other Wednesday. That's awesome. And have for years. And, um, and I'm... Well, I'm being recorded. Um, and there's an intentionality around there. I still want to hear from my dad. I still want to interact with my dad when he's 70 and I'm 40-something. Um, and I think that's what we want with our kids. And so we have to create a context for that. And we have to do that when they're young. If we're not creating context for our kids to have open dialogue with us at a young age, we're setting ourselves up for when they're old. <laughs> Have a good day. Um, okay, let's look at 29 through 31. Yeah. Um, you mentioned just creating a, a context for open conversation with your kids. Um, would, would you say that uh, there needs to be an agenda when that happens? Um, I mean, it depends on the age. I, it started with me taking someone out for ice cream once a week, no matter what, and we would open God's Word and read it together and talk about it. Um, and it, that, you know, context was where we had, quote-unquote, the talk. Um, that context was where we, I would ask them, I would always open with intentional questions to dig into where their heart was. Um, those of you there in a small group, my goal was to, to ask them without asking them all of the core questions. What are you learning in the Word? How is it changing your heart? How is God using you in the process of evangelism? Um, and, and even in that one, when they weren't believers, it was how is God affecting your heart with the things you're reading? Um, and are you praying? and talk about those things in the context. So there wasn't a strict agenda for me. I, I think it's helpful sometimes. It's easy if you don't have an agenda to have that time be pointless. Um, and as they got older, um, it's still been like, the intentionality in the agenda for me is you gotta get through the small talk to really dig into what is going on in their heart. Um, and that can be, if it's the same every time, it becomes the same every time. And so it's really just trying to interact with them in a way that gets into their heart. Um, and, you know, Jonathan this year turned, go, like, he graduated high school when, when they closed high schools. Um, he had his first girlfriend break up with him. That was awesome. It was terrible. <laughs> um, 
and and he had some opportunities for what he was going to do after high school that he we needed to talk a lot about how he was making those decisions biblically and so there was just a whole lot going on so i didn't go into it with like hey i want to i mean i went into it with an agenda of these are things that i know are is on his heart and i need to pull that out of him so that we can talk about them but i didn't have a script still uh, meet with them once a week, all your kids, or is it... Uh... No, schedules make that harder. Um, I probably should more, but I definitely carve out at least a half hour or an hour of one-on-one time. Um, there's, there's some side benefits to owning a business and having everyone in the family work for the business. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, like, Jonathan and I were building furniture um, day before yesterday for two hours and just chatting while we were doing it. Sure. Um, Noah is, works in the shop. He'll be there all day today, and he and I will be roasting coffee and packaging coffee today like and chatting. So the context of our life right now, the getting away almost creates a closedness to them at this age that just being in the context of doing things seems to have been more productive. Um, but it varies. Uh, and if, like... The last thing I want to do is beat myself up because I'm not doing it in this like context that I think is most productive. Sure. Um, what I want to do is what Deuteronomy 6 says and have those conversations every opportunity I can. Um, and, and you have to be present as a father to do that. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot of time. Like I think that's the hardest thing. You know, I I said this last year, and if there were things I could do over in my parenting, it would probably be put less focus on work. Um, work was less important than I thought it was, and and put more focus on the time that I spend at home. I've had jobs in my career where I traveled for like five days a week for however many, like a long time. I've had jobs in my career where it was on call 24-7, and I got called all the time. <laughs> And so I just wasn't home. And I think I missed out on opportunities in those. Um, and it's just exhausting. And so you, you come home, and it's hard to be on, and it's hard to be focused. And so um, I think one of the pieces, which isn't really in this lesson, I think I've got it in a lesson later during build, but one of the pieces to parenting and husbanding is to prioritize the right things the right way. You've got 168 hours in the week it's worth it to plan every single one. Um, and so, yeah. Thanks for asking, Amri, that was helpful. What do you do? You got like 43 kids. You got like 43 kids, so. <laughs> uh, I can't remember where I, where I heard this. Uh, it, it might have actually been from, uh, from Josh, um, but, we, we, we do something similar um, just every Monday, those are my days off, um, is we just take one kid out of each, uh, I do. And they each develop like a preference for what they like to do, and so it's not always ice cream. They've got their specific places to teach kids that they like to go, and so um, we don't have an agenda, but we do uh, open up God's Word and and talk about it, and with, you know, six, five, and two, 
Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's been helpful to just get to know them and the things that I know Emily struggles with and sees more than I do. Uh, I'll try and highlight that um, <coughs> in that Proverbs and it's a short verse and we'll talk about it and talk about what that means for them when, when they're at home. I mean, it's 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 obviously working because you know your kids, um, and you know like that's part of it. I think with my relationship with my dad, he he was a consultant. He traveled five days a week always, my whole childhood, and so he was a disciplinarian. And I had a relationship with him as he would come in and discipline, and then go on a trip. Um, and it, it was later in life before I had a friendship with him um, and could actually talk to him about life. Um, and, and so I've intentionally tried to avoid that. Like, you don't want your kids to think of you strictly as the disciplinarian. And so when dad's talking, I know I'm in trouble. Um, and, and sometimes that's how you bless your wife, but that's not always the best way. And so you've got to carve out times to talk to them where they're not in trouble. Oh. So, Eli is a good warning um, in this this passage to, because his kids just didn't listen, and so that that didn't all happen all at once. Um, so let me see where I want to pick up. Let's jump down um, to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And we'll talk a little bit about David here. Um, Chapter 7 talks early on about David's and the priority he had with his house. And then we know the undoing of his own house. Um, so 7 verse 10 says I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house, that you have brought me this far? David understood God's priority for his house and was humbled by it. But then he strayed from his duties. He watched a woman through his window, and he acted on his lust. He then tried to cover his sin by setting up Uriah and eventually had him killed. And just four chapters later, we look at verse 26 of chapter 11. It says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then jumping over to chapter 12, verse 9, it says, 
God says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. One man's neglect of his household impacted an entire nation for generations. A moment of sin devastated his family for generations. Household relationships must take priority. Sin can creep in and be so destructive. I'm, you don't have to turn there, but the first Kings 11 talks about Solomon. For Solomon, building his house contrary to God's will invert, adversely impacted his heart. Um, not taking care of his relationship with his wife brought great pain to the nation. You have to conclude from Scripture that the household is important. It appears to be a divisive place, relationship speaking, yet how quickly we think other relationships outside the home are the ones that matter most. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 and look at God's concern for his glory in the household. So this follows the section we read earlier. And starting in verse 10, it says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt and out of the houses of slavery. When all these good things are happening, you get all these good things, watch yourself so that you do not forget the Lord. And jumping to chapter 8, verse 10, it says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiplies and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you have everything you need, it is easy to forget about God. And, and so... There's an element here. I mean, he's talking about the household. He's talking about everything you have in your household, not just the people in your home, but what your household looks like. Um, and if everything seems to be going, going exactly the way you think you want it to go, that might be the time you forget about the Lord your God. Um, I know in my life, when money was tight, man, I was pleading with God to help me, give me wisdom on how to get out of that. Um, and when things are plentiful, um, I'm not as quick to thank God for everything he's given me. Um, anything in this world can become a distraction. And 
and that's what the warning was for Israel. Let's jump over to Acts 16. Verses 11 through 15. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the way following to Neopolis, Neopolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the woman, the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Um, so I think what's saying there is she was a, an Old Testament um, worshiper of God. And when she, God opened her heart to understand what was spoken of God, it was, it was that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The Lord opened her heart to believe in Jesus, and her whole house was baptized. Um, you get one heart, and oftentimes the whole household changes at the heart level. Has anyone here seen a family member come to faith? Has anyone been led to the Lord by a family member? Me. Um, indirectly. Um, this is comforting to those of us with unsaved family. Uh, and, and an encouragement for us to not neglect gospel conversations with family. Um, there's another story of the jailer that was guarding Paul and Silas and when they sang their chains came off but Paul and Silas didn't leave you guys remember that story it's actually in this chapter and if you pick it up at verse 30 it says after he brought them out he said this was Paul and Silas he said sirs what must I do to be saved and they said believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house and he took them with that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized and he and all of his household and he brought them into his house and set before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household um, it happens there too it seems to happen a lot in scripture and it seems to happen a lot and that, that goes back to just the importance of bringing the gospel in our household we want our whole household to be affected by the way we're being affected The next section talks about the attack on the household. I'm run, more running, or running out of time more than I even anticipated. So um, I think I'm going to skip this next section, but I really encourage you to go look at 2 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Um, it's, we just need to be very careful about what's happening in our homes. Um, and... 
but I want to make sure I have time for this last, sec- this last point, which is the household can become an obstacle to the gospel. We don't want to lift up the household so high or higher above what God does. And so turn with me to Matthew 10. I think last year someone came and printed off the notes online and then printed off every passage that we went through ahead of time so they didn't have to turn. I was like, man, it's good thinking. I turn... I have them in my notes, but I turn because that gives me a gauge of how long it'll take you guys plus five minutes of turning because I'm slow. Um, Matthew 10, 34 says, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring, bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. God has a priority for the household, but it is not higher than him. Um, I think Josh said this when he was teaching, maybe if he teaches, I think, I can't remember if he's teaching later. He's in his less build lesson on um, just husbanding. He talks about the fear he has about making his spouse an idol. Um, and that struck me that it's easy for me to make my wife and my kids an idol um, and desire things in them that is not what God desires. And at the end of the day, if they hate God um, and my relationship with them is strong, that's not what I want. Um, I heard a quote, I haven't been able to verify it, but it's still pretty poignant, that when Spurgeon's mom was praying that Spurgeon becomes a believer, she would pray, God save my son, but if you don't, allow me to be the one to send him to hell because of his opposition towards you. Wow. Oh. <laughs> like, um, that's, uh, that's a love for God. Um, I, I would love to be there. I hope that I'm there. Um, I'd rather not be tested and just have God save my children. <laughs> um, but that's a love for God. Um, the family is not the apex of God's redemption plan. The family is important to God's heart, but the gospel is the apex of his plan. I'll close with God's concern for a gospel-centered marriage. Um, Ephesians 5. This is also probably very familiar. Um, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also 
so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. We must shepherd with the gospel to the gospels. Husbands must spend the rest of your life developing a solid grasp of how Jesus loved the church so that your love for your wife can be what it is supposed to be. And men must have a solid grasp on the church and on the oneness of the church and the body with Christ. The husband must shepherd his heart with the doctrine of the church because marriage isn't merely about marriage. The relation, it's about the relationship between Jesus and the church. And if the body of Christ and the gospel is an afterthought to the man, his love for his wife will be stunted. This is where actually D3, Discipline 3, feeds Discipline 2. When Discipline 3, the way that you um, interact with the church, does not improve your household and your heart, you're doing it wrong. You need to interact with the church in a way that your love for your wife and your love for God grows. Um, there's a cool uh, passage here in chapter Acts 18 that talks about Priscilla and Aquila. It's really cool to just see a marriage ministry in work in Scripture. It's all about they um, and how they uh, brought the gospel to people. I, I would encourage you to think about how your household is a platform for the church, whether it's bringing people into your household, whether it's serving the church together. I think in younger years... Um, it was just logistically cool for Jenna or I to be at church and the kids to all be healthy. Um, as they get older, um, there's a lot more opportunities to be able to serve together. Um, but I would encourage you to kind of think about that. Is your ministry a partnership with your wife or is she a sideline observer? Um, and, and if she's a sideline observer, figure out a way to partner with her. So the overwhelming message of the Bible is that the man of God places a priority on spiritually influencing his household with his heart for Jesus in the gospel. God's heart for the home through the man of God can't be missed. Um, yeah, let me close in prayer. Lord God, you love the home. You clearly put a priority on it. It's clearly a means of gospel proclamation. It's clearly a means of you bringing glory to yourself. Lord, help us love our homes the way you do. Help us prioritize our homes in the way that you do. Lord, help us not be fearful of difficult conversations with our kids, with our wife. Lord, let's not take, help us to not take the easy path. Um, but help us shepherd our homes. Help us to, to have those difficult conversations because you are glorified in those. Lord, help us not to be lazy 
in our time in our home, but to be more diligent in our home than anywhere else. Because that's your priority, Lord. In your name, amen.